Good morning. May it please the court, counsel. I am Catherine Middlebrook, and I represent appellant Melvin Bill Bro in this appeal of his sentence. Appellant pled guilty in Hennepin County in 2008 to one count of attempted second degree murder and one count of criminal sexual conduct in the second degree. There was no agreement to a specific sentence in his case. The district court sentenced appellant to 163 months on the attempted murder and a 36 month consecutive sentence on the criminal sexual conduct. Counsel, can you tell me what, um, if it makes a difference that there was this negotiation, so there were four counts, and there was a negotiation between uh, defense and the state as to which counts he was going to plead guilty to, and then that puts the that puts at least a box around what the sentence may be or may not be. Does that make a difference? In this case, no, it did not make a difference. Um, appellant pled guilty to the top two charges. The attempted murder was the most serious charge involving that victim, and the criminal sexual conduct in the second degree was the only charge involving the other victim. And the, the plea, there was basically a straight plea because he pled to those two top charges and there was no agreement on the sentence. The, um, the, in fact, when they went into sentencing, the, uh, the state argued for consecutive sentencing and the defense argued for concurrent. So that wasn't even part of the uh, plea that there would be consecutive sentences in this case. And the state also asked for 163 months, which was the middle of the box. It wasn't even the top of the box. So as part of what the state is arguing is the plea agreement, there was no uh, specific sentence. The state didn't ensure that it was top of the box plus But counsel, isn't it always up to the district court to determine the sentence? I mean, the parties can talk about what they would like to have happen, but it is up to the district court to make the final decision in regards to what that sentence will be. And what, and what impact does that have on whether there's an agreement or not? Since they're not, it can't be a final decision. The district court judge is the only one who can do that. You're correct. It's up to the district court judge, but in this case, the, the district court, the decision for the district court was to go to whether to sentence appellant consecutively or not. And each party argued, one argued, the defense argued for current, current, the state argued for consecutive. I think maybe what, um, if I'm understanding where, what your question is, this is not the situation with regard to the Coles decision where there was a plea negotiation where that defendant pled guilty to a lesser charge, a reduced charge, and in, in re return for that, he agreed to an upward departure. So he still got less than what he would have gotten on the top charge, and so there was that type of a negotiation. But does it make a difference that he agreed to essentially not object to a higher sentence? Because again, it's the district court, because the district court have said, could have said, we're not accepting that. You're right. The district court, the district court could have rejected. I mean, could have sentenced him to the top of the box, or could have sentenced him and did sentence to con consecutive. But what the issue in this case is is that whether or not the consecutive terms were authorized by law, because at the time of appellant's offense, the guidelines did not provide for consecutive sentences for attempts, including this attempted second degree murder. And that's because at that point, the guidelines provided an exclusive list of what offenses were eligible for consecutive sentences. So I guess back to your question on, is it up to the district court? The district court could have ultimately decided to give more time than 163 months, could have gone to the top of the box, it still would have been a presumptive sentence, but it didn't, and the, the parties were asking for 163, that's what the state came in and asked for. So the district court went with that, and within, then it was up to the district court to decide concurrent or consecutive, decided consecutive, but what they all missed was the fact that that wasn't authorized. So in that sense, the, the district court was wrong, 
and appellant has an unauthorized sentence by it being consecutive. What role does Noggle play in all this? Excuse me? What role does Noggle, our decision in Noggle, play? Um, the Noggle case is very instructive here. And that, that case, because it, it involved the, a statute um, rather than the guidelines, but as this court knows, when interpreting the guidelines, the same principles apply. And, and in Noggle, the issue was whether or not the 10-year conditional release period by statute um, under 609.3455, subdivision 6, whether or not that would apply to an attempted criminal sexual conduct. I think that was a third degree. Um, and this court looked at that and looked at the statute that listed five specific statutes that the 10-year conditional release would apply to, and it did not include attempts. It did not include 609.17. So this court held that based on the plain language of that statute and that exclusive list that the 10-year conditional release could not apply to attempted criminal sexual conduct uh, cases. That's very, you know, much the same case here where the guidelines has provided this exclusive list of sentences that are uh, eligible for consecutive sentencing and the attempted second-degree murder is not on that list. The only attempted crime that was on the list at that time was attempted first-degree murder. So, again, just a little bit of background. Um, before 2005, the guidelines did allow a court to make the decision whether or not a crime involved a personal offense, whether there were multiple victims of personal offense. Um, but then after, when Blakely came down, the Guidelines Commission looked at that and thought that that may cause problems for the guidelines in this consecutive sentencing where there had to be a finding of whether or not a crime was a personal offense. And, and they then went through very carefully and deliberately and looked at each of the crimes and came up with this list that's in Section 6 of the guidelines. And that's what was in effect at the time of appellant's offense. So based on that plain language that's very clear, unambiguous, it's clear that at that time the consecutive sentences were not authorized and appellant should have been, should have been given concurrent sentences because there also was no departure ground stated. Counsel, let, let's say you're right. Let's say that um, um, this sentence was unauthorized. Your proposed remedy in both your brief and your reply brief is to um, have the sentences sentence corrected to concurrent terms. That's correct. Why wouldn't we just vacate and remand for resentencing? Well, the reason you would not vacate and remand is because the consecutive sentences are unauthorized. And to make them a legal sentence, the sentences need to be corrected to concurrent terms. The, the consecutive sentences, you're arguing, are at least unauthorized based on the, the current record. Why, why wouldn't we just vacate and remand for resentencing? You not, um, because at this point, there has been no departure factors um, stated, either admitted by the appellant or found by the district court. And under your case law of Williams and Geller, you don't send it back to give the judge another chance at at resentencing to a departure, it has to be corrected where there's been no reasons given. So in this case, that's the, the appropriate remedy is to correct it to concurrent terms. What is, does the record reflect what the current status of the defendant is relative to um, these various violations? Does it, does it make a difference in terms of the outcome here, what we do with this? Um, well, it, it makes a difference in the sense that because of the lower court's misconstruction of the guidelines, um, appellant has been unlawfully restrained past his supervised release date on his attempted second-degree murder. He is entitled to immediate release if, um, if these sentences are corrected and he would then go out on, supervi on supervising conditional release. So that there is a sense of urgency here that um, I would ask the court, if you agree with our position, that you issue an order immediately and follow up with a decision on the merits um, to allow him to 
be released for the Department of Corrections to start their release planning and get him out on his supervised release. Council, does the, do the guidelines um, address at all our case law on sentencing when the crime involves multiple victims? The, do the guidelines, my understanding of yes. the question? Yes, yes. Well, before, before 2005, the guidelines did specifically allow consecutive, permissive consecutive sentences where there were multiple offenses involving person offenses. And they could be, they could be ordered consecutive. And in that case, the judge would find whether or not the offense um, involved was a person offense. After 2005, however, the guidelines changed the language so that permissive consecutive sentences were eligible if they were on the list. And there's a list, I think, of like 117 offenses. And, and the, the guidelines in 2005 they had a subcommittee that went through all of the crimes and the statutes that allow consecutive sentences and made this very specific deliberate list and it includes if you take a look at it and I think I included in the addendum to the brief um, and the, even today it includes like all these crimes that would be person offenses yeah I mean I guess what I'm getting at though I, I, I see in the in the guideline the current version of the guidelines there's some discussion of multiple victims in the calculation of a criminal history score but I guess what I'm wondering is whether there's anything in the guidelines on our case law that arises under 609.035 and 609.04 that provides that the court can give sentences when, multiple sentences when there are multiple victims. And I'm just wondering if the guidelines discuss that, that body of law at all, because it seems to me there could be an argument, and I'm going to ask the state about this, I don't really understand the state to be making this argument, but there could be an argument that by imposing concurrent sentences, you're undermining, in a way, our case law that provides that you can get two sentences when there are multiple victims. Well, the you, the, the difference between okay, so the, there can be there can be multiple sentences when there's multiple victims, and also the guidelines talk about where there's um, the same victim but multiple offenses and there's some exceptions under 609.035 that would apply if, with regard to just whether or not they can be consecutive based on them being a personal offense that the case, the old case law recognized since the guidelines have gone to this list that controls. So there is not any discussion now about that. Um, and those case, the cases that were relied on by the Court of Appeals is a pre-2005 case, so it doesn't apply. And the, the, the state also brings up that the 2005 changes to the guideline, that there was this mistake made by not including the attempts, and points out that in 2009, the guidelines changed the provision and added attempts and conspiracies to that list of crimes eligible for permissive consecutive sentencing. And that's true, they did change that, and that came about um, after there was a Court of Appeals published decision that said that that list did not include the attempts, so therefore that defendant, that was State versus Johnson, could not be sentenced to consecutive terms. And the, but, the 2009 changes really are a change to the policy. They even say that in all of the commentary, in all of the revisions, say that it was a change to the policy. So the state's argument that it was just a drafting error doesn't hold any weight. There's nothing to support that whatsoever. Um, and in fact, during the whole discussion in 2009, not once does any of the commission members say that it was, there was an oversight or it was a mistake. They all talk about how they now want to include attempts and conspiracies to make the guidelines more clear and more simpler for imposing consecutive sentences where there's 
attempts, and it, kind of, it seems that they wanted to make it consistent with the list, so they added the provision in there to, that it would also include attempts Council, and can we go conspiracies. Back to the, can we go back to the <clears throat> question posed by Justice Lillahog about remand? Did you, the, the case that you cited for the proposition that we can't remand for um, resentencing, what was, did you say it was, is it Williams it's, versus State? Yeah, State versus Williams and State versus Geller, G-E-L-L-E-R. Because State versus Williams actually doesn't say that. It actually says that this court, we cannot look at the record and come up with a sentence, but it doesn't say that we cannot remand back to the district court for resentencing. Well, if, this, if you look at Geller, Geller does say that if there's no departure reasons given by the district court, that the remedy is to impose the presumptive sentence, and that the district court basically doesn't get to go back and re-look at the case and come up with departure reasons. In fact, that would violate Blakely, um, because at this point, the defendant has not um, admitted any of those facts, and the district court did not find that there were grounds for a, a, an upward departure. So if based on Geller, um, at this point, the only remedy is to correct to concurrent terms, which are the presumptive sentences. When, when would the, um, when would Mr. Bilbro have gotten out of, been released from prison had they not imposed the consecutive sentences? When did that first sentence? Uh... So that would have been, um, I think, believe it's in, it was early spring, um, or maybe the end of 2017 or, or early spring. I can double check the exact date, but uh, but he's already been in almost over almost a year at this point. Yeah, he's he's it's um it's been it's well it's in, well into a year that he's been past his supervised release date on his attempted second degree murder sentence. So we would ask the court to reverse the court of appeals on this issue and order that appellant sentences be corrected to concurrent terms. And again, I would ask the court to, um, given, the, given the situation, that the court immediately issue an order and then follow up with a longer decision. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Ms. Lewan. May it please the court, counsel. Your honors, my name is Brittany Lawan, and I'm an assistant Hennepin County attorney appearing on behalf of the state. I think that Justice McKegg's question at the beginning of the argument hits us right on the head. Whether or not this was a plea agreement controls the outcome in this case. Here, it was a plea agreement, just there was no agreement to a specific sentence number. However, there was an agreement to arrange. Blakely was no longer on the table. Therefore, the defendant no longer faced the possibility of a double departure on an attempted second-degree murder. Instead, he capped his sentence at 195 months on the murder, excuse me, on the attempted murder charge and 36 months on the criminal sexual conduct charge. There was no agreement that it would not be consecutive. In fact, if you look at the sentencing transcript, the defense counsel told appellant that he could face possible consecutive sentencing. The parties here were acting under a mutual mistake as to what the law was at that time because that is what the law had Do I understand been. the state's position to be that any time there is an agreement to drop a charge, um, it's, not, it's no longer a straight plea, and therefore the plea is no longer subject to Rule 27? Yes, Your Honor. Any time there's an agreement as to any of the charges being dismissed, it is no longer a straight plea. So the state can insulate itself from Rule 27 by simply making sure that it charges um, enough, that it includes enough additional charges that can be disposed of in the context of a plea agreement and Rule 27 no longer applies. I don't think that that would be what the state is doing, Your Honor. I think this I, I didn't say what, that's what the state is doing here, but what I'm concerned about is what the state might be doing in some other uh, um, transaction as a consequence of adopting the state's position. And, and am I right that that's at least a possibility? I'm not sure. I, that's an excellent question. I Once in a while. <laughs> in, looking, in looking at it, here, taking this is because this is what we have, it's charged, it was started as second degree assault because that was what was known and then some more information came out with regard to her optic nerve and things of that nature. So then it was amended. And here, rather than have an individual plead to each of the offenses where he'd get points for those offenses, he had the option to plead to the top counts. So, 
reason I raise this this question is, I mean, the purpose for Rule 27 is is to make sure that defendants always have the right to challenge a sentence that is illegal. And it strikes me, um, and, and again, I'm not suggesting that's what's going on here, but it strikes me that your position could incentivize um, um, charging practices that would not be beneficial in terms of carrying out the purpose of Rule 27. And I think if that were such an instance, Your Honor, this court could always step in in its inherent authority if there is such a problem with the sentence where it is so illegal and despite the fact that there was a sentence, uh, excuse me, a charge that was dismissed, this court could step in. I don't think that this would infringe on this court, especially given that Rule 2703 is a procedural rule. Well, let's, How let's take Justice Anderson's question and extend it a little bit. Uh, let's say a defendant's charged with five counts and the deal is we're going to drop four of them and the defendant will be sentenced. And the, 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 the cap on the remaining count is five years. But the district court, just by mistake, imposes a six-year sentence. Would that six-year sentence be immune from attack under Rule 27? Would you have to proceed under MnSTAT 590? It would if it's outside the two-year time bar. This is There's a reason why there is the two-year time bar under 590. So once that two-year time bar passes, the then the defendant would be stuck with the six years? I mean, unless we invoked what you say would be our inherent authority, is that, is that the logical consequence? That's my understanding, Your Honor, because here there's a reason why there's that two-year time bar. There's an interest in finality. There's an interest in knowing whether or not a sentence is legal or is not illegal. Where in Coles did we imply that kind of result? Would, in, would, in Coles, Your Honor, there's a discussion about how the state loses the benefit of its bargain if the sentence is undone and part of the plea yeah but it wasn't a material it wasn't an, at least an implicit material term of the plea bargain in my hypothetical that the defendant would be sentenced within the statutory uh, range I mean that the district court wouldn't violate the law well I would hope in that instance your honor that appellate counsel or the state would notice that at the sentencing hearing and realize that there was a mistake and call it out here this is something where well my hypothetical depends on someone not noticing it I understand that that makes it a bit more tricky I think that in Coles, it is still a part of a bargain. The state gives up the need to put on its trial, and they do make concessions with regard to sentencing. Here, if this is if this is vacated and sent back for a guilty plea, we're going to be asking a girl who was 11 when she was sexually assaulted by this man to testify 10 years later. And there's a reason why there needs to I be some I appreciate you're making an equitable argument, but I'm focusing on what the law is. And, and it is not a material term of a plea agreement that the district court is going to act illegally, is it? I don't think it's a material term, but I also don't think it's something that we should presume. We should presume that the court is going to act legally. I think here it was just a mistake by the parties, and that's because of the strange nature of the fact that this was changed in 2005. Before that, there's subsequent case law starting that goes back to when the guidelines were created in 1980, talking about how permissive consecutive sentences were allowed for multiple victims. And so that was always what was known. The parties were operating under that assumption. But because of that mistake, perhaps then the right remedy, if this court grants a remedy, is to withdraw the plea and start over. So what, what if you were going to prosecute someone for um, breaking some law that they didn't know was actually the law? Because the law had changed uh, the year before and no one understood that. Would you be up here arguing it's okay for someone not to know the law? Well, the, it will excuse their conduct? With, with respect, Your Honor, there is case law that says that citizens are presumed to know the law. That's, that's a case that's often used. But the state's not. The state is presumed to know the law as well. Here, I'm saying had the parties known that there was a mistake, it would have been rectified. It wasn't brought to the attention until nine years later. And it seemed, but I think I'm not trying to be flip about this and to say that if there's a mistake that's made, there is no remedy. However, it has to be a timely remedy. There's a reason why there's a two-year limitation. It seems like the timeliness is the fact that the guy's been sitting in prison for a year on a sentence he should have never been sentenced to. And that's unfortunate, and that's something that I More think... More than unfortunate. That's illegal and pretty unconstitutional. But and I, I can't believe the state's actually arguing here that that's a problem. I don't necessarily think that it's completely illegal, though. If and you look in at fact, the guidelines, in your sir. brief to the court, the initial PFR memo, didn't you say that you agreed 
with the defendant's position? The state agreed with the position of the Court of Appeals in affirming the sentence. The language in the letter for responding to the petition for further review spoke specifically to the outcome of the case. It did not speak to the reasoning of the case. And if that was poorly well, worded, Lohan, that's my I'm not fault. sure that's true. When I look at that letter, it says we agree with the Court of Appeals analysis. And the way I interpret analysis is that it would be the entire analysis. And when you think about what the Court of Appeals did in its opinion, the opinion's only eight pages long and six of it is the facts and this issue, which it determined, uh, which it said was a threshold issue, whether or not we consider this a post-conviction petition and thus he's subject to the, to the two-year timeline or whether this is a Rule 27. And so it, it's just concerning that, um, I mean, I understand the, the, the gloss, if you will, you're kind of putting on it now, um, that, well, we were just talking about, um, and I noticed you were the attorney for the PFR in the response as well, that you were just talking about the end result. But the, but the language of the letter suggests that it's broader than that. And so not only were we caught off guard um, by this issue coming up now, but so is the defendant. And that, that's concerning to me. Well, first, Your Honor, to address the language, if that is my drafting mistake in not making it more clear. And I own that. And I apologize for that. However, it... It is something where the language of that had to do with the overall result. The state is not typically one that drafts a lengthy response to petitions for further review, but in light of this, I have talked about doing that and changing that in my practice. Additionally, with regard to a surprise to defense, excuse me, to appellant, this was the issue that appellant raised initially with by filing a post-conviction petition, excuse me, a 2703. So here there is no Counsel, surprise. by the time, by the state, when you read the, the appellant's brief, it, of course, only addresses the issue we actually granted review on, and that's what you would expect them to do. And in fact, we would call them on it if they went beyond that. Correct, And Your so Honor. they're only responding. So to now have to respond to this very key issue in light of the other questions that have been raised here um, again, is, is, is very troubling. Correct, Your Honor. However, there is specifically a rule of criminal procedure that allows the state to defend on any grounds raised below. This is what distinguishes this from the case that this court issued in Webster versus Hennepin, which was a civil case where there isn't such a, a rule below regarding cross-petitioning. In fact, 20, excuse me, 2904 subdivision 6 says the court has discretion to permit a respondent without filing a cross-appeal to defend a decision or judgment on any ground that the law and record permit that would not expand the relief that has been granted and to the I respondent. I get that, Ms. Lewan, and, and I, I appreciate what you're saying. And, and you know, rule 2904 is and that particular subdivision is really a, a prudential administrative rule of convenience, but it's an important one because it's about putting the parties and putting the court on notice about what they have to address. And here where you don't respond to the PFR, you don't cross petition, and it comes up, you know, out of the blue, um, it just seems to me more care needs to be taken in, in the future with respect to that, particularly. Um, I mean, I just expect more from the state, and especially um, Hennepin County, when you're as large as you are, as experienced as the county is, uh, and as talented, like yourself, as the attorneys are. Um, it's not good. I appreciate that, Your Honor, and I take that under counsel. I would like to go to the issue of if you lose on the first issue, um, and it, tell me what you think should happen. Your Honor, if this court were to conclude that it is not to be treated as a post-conviction petition, I think then it goes to the analysis of whether or not the sentencing guidelines are clear. I did not raise an ambiguous argument because I don't think that it is ambiguous. I think that would be dis disingenuous to, to argue before the court. However, if you look at the result, it's an absurd result, which is still something that should be considered. And you have to look at the language of the guidelines and what actually happened. Counsel brought up the language after the change following the Johnson decision. She's right that it was described in those documents as a policy change, things of that nature, to, to kind of make it clear that they wanted to include attempts and conspiracies. However, if you listen to the audio of the Sentencing Commission discussing this following Johnson, Chief Judge Cleary from the Court of Appeals, who's on the Sentencing Commission at the time, talks about how it was surprising to him. He doesn't say that it was an oversight, but he says that in a sense, Judge Kevin Burke. But counsel, we don't really get into that if we, unless we get to ambiguity, right? I appreciate that, Your Honor, and that is true. However, I think it's important to, to be aware of it. I do recognize that this is not ambiguous on its face, but looking at the absurdness of the result is still something that this court can but look at. But I would ask, I would like a, um, 
on remand, what should happen? On remand, it should yes. be vacate. The proper remedy is to vacate the plea and to allow the parties to start over. I don't think it's just resentencing. I would point out that Geller is a case that was pre-Blakely, and it does, it's in a situation where everyone was talking about departure grounds. So that is a bit distinguishable from here, as well as Williams talking about sending it back if there are no departure grounds. Here, no one thought there needed to be a so departure. can I just, on a practical matter, so as I do the calculation, Mr. Bilbro, even if consecutive sentences are okay, has, he'll be getting out on his second sentence within months. So it, even at that point when he would get out under the consecutive sentence, you would still go back and bring everybody back in to try to resentence him for the second one, even though even once he's sentenced again, he will be immediately released? No, Your Honor. If, if this were, court were to conclude that there was not a post-conviction if it was not a post-conviction, then the time bar would not apply. And so then this court could take a remedy for the 2703 for the sentence, if they would like. If this court chooses to find that it is an illegal sentence, the proper remedy would to go back and vacate. And he could be released pending that decision with regard to the plea. I would imagine that the prosecutor and defense counsel in this case would take highly into consideration his time in custody. I'm not saying that he should... So why isn't the prosecutor just doing that right now? Because I'm not in a position to do that because we're on appeal. Jurisdiction is not with the district court. This is something where it's a post-conviction. You would have the discretion not to challenge this appeal. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last part. You would have the discretion not to challenge this appeal. That is true, Your Honor. However, the state has a duty to challenge it when this was a post-conviction. This is an issue where this was filed more than nine years after his sentence was was final. This and is counsel, also it's not just about this case, right? Correct. It's not. This also defines what a plea agreement is. There's differing language, which I discussed in the first part of my brief, talking about whether it's a straight plea, whether it's a plea agreement, whether it's a plea with regard to sentence. This happens all the time in district court, where it might be labeled the wrong thing. That counsel, doesn't control I, I, what it I is. I wonder, though, you know. As I look at Coles, this case seems so not Coles to me. I mean, in Coles, you've got it, a situation where it clearly involves a plea agreement, where the parties um, specifically talk about the sentences that they expect and that they're uh, uh, exchanging, uh, you know, the quid pro quo for in terms of, yes, it's going to be consecutive. They go through that in detail. And then the district court comes in and talks, makes findings on it and talks about the fact that it's doing what it's doing because of uh, what both parties have given up. And when I look at the sentencing transcript in this case, it looks the total opposite of that to me. Um, it is, as Ms. Middlebrook said, you've got the defense saying, or excuse me, yeah, well, the defense arguing for um, uh, concurrent and the state arguing for consecutive. It doesn't look anything like Coles to me. I mean, why am I wrong about that? Your Honor, it is different from Coles because there was not an agreement to the number of for the sentence. There was not a specific word going to 199. That I, seems pretty significant to me. I respectfully disagree, Your Honor. It can still be a plea agreement with a cap. This was a box where the state agreed not to go outside the presumptive box, not to go outside the guidelines box, not to seek an upward departure on a case where a woman's optic nerve was severed and then her child is raped. This Counsel, is, is it uncommon for the parties to come to an agreement on, um, on what will be pled and then leaving it to the court knowing that there is these parameters. That's very common, Your Honor. In fact, often the case will be that the parties can't agree to a number. They can agree whether or not an individual And it will generally admit to gets something. sent for a PSI? Yes, Your which Honor. Which is helpful in the decision for everyone? Yes, Your Honor, and that was done here, and I think that's but why But don't it's you so also clear. have to find, if you're going to depart, that there actually are grounds for that doesn't the district court have to make that finding, which was never made here? Yes, and the reason that wasn't made here, though, Your Honor, is because the parties were under the understanding, including the district court, that a departure was not needed because there were multiple victims and it was permissive consecutive. Had there been a need for those findings, the court would have made those findings. There was a need for the findings. There was, in hindsight, looking back at that. But at the time, everyone was operating under... Well, not just under in hindsight... The law in 2007 said there was a need for the findings. You don't disagree with that, right? The guidelines in 2007 say that. However, I still think that you have to look at the case law from this court beforehand that talks about the fact that permissive consecutive was presumed. This is essentially, and, and I quote just, excuse me, Chief Judge Cleary, just to point out the surprise when they're talking about it. He says that essentially this amounted to the person getting a freebie when talking about Johnson, which was an attempted murder case. 
So here, there was always an assumption that the parties could sentence consecutively. It was never in doubt. Had it been in doubt, I doubt the plea agreement would have gone in this way because I can't imagine a prosecutor from our office agreeing to only one sentence with two victims like this. So let's say we, uh, we don't agree with your argument regarding the two-year statute of limitations that, that the uh, 27.03 applies here. Um, what would be the remedy? The remedy then, Your Honor, is for this court to, if the court finds that the sentence is unauthorized by the guidelines, it would be to vacate and remand for, for, for what? a plea withdrawal. Because it's an essential, well, I think still because it's part of an essential part of the plea agreement. And if you look at case law, I'm going to butcher this, Dezeller, talking but, about how a mutual mistake justifies. We, well, let me add one more caveat. Let's say we happen to disagree with you that it's a material part of the plea agreement. In other words, Coles doesn't apply. Okay. That's the way I think I read Coles. Um, what, then what is the remedy? Is it to remand for sentences, to make the sentences concurrent? Or is it to remand for resentencing and, and the, uh, the, the bottle cap is off and the state can now uh, make a record on a departure? Well, that's difficult here because to remand for resentencing, we'd still be under, operating under the plea agreement where the state waived Blakely. So the state wouldn't be able to argue for a, a departure. So all that's left then is to do concurrent sentences. Yes, but I think that it is a mutual mistake if you look at this. And therefore, under DeZeller, that with, leads to withdrawing of the plea. So if this court doesn't find that it is a mutual mistake of parties, then this court could send it back for imposition of concurrent sentences. However, I think that in a sense violates Coles, which I get is redundant because you don't, you're not accepting Coles with that, but it basically takes away the state's bargain. So can they go back and retry him? They could. He could also plead guilty. Counsel, if, if you're agreeing that you're calling it a mutual mistake, but if you're agreeing that concurrent sentences were proper, why wouldn't we impose that ourselves, particularly where you have a situation where a man has been serving a sentence for over a year now that he shouldn't have been serving? Why would we send that back? Particularly when you're agreeing that this, whether, it's, whether you call it mutual mistake or not, it was wrong. And perhaps I'm, I'm not being as clear. This is... If this court were not to agree with me that it is an absurd result and this court were to conclude that this is a mutual mistake, then this court could do that. It's just a matter of whether or not the state gets the benefit of its bargain here. And sending it back for concurrent sentences based on a mistake that was made by the parties does not allow the state to get the benefit. If, this is, if that is something that is the appropriate remedy in light of, I'm not, I'm not about to tell this court that it can't do something. <laughs> what I'm saying is that this court has recognized in Coles that parties give up certain aspects of their plea in or of their positions in order to allow for a plea agreement. I guess that's why I, we've been having a discussion that, that is it like Coles? Because it does not seem to be close to me to Coles. But, but, but let me ask another question. Why is this, would this be an absurd result? You keep using that phrase, and I'm not sure why it is an absurd result. Because it would allow for a, a drastic change in the way that sentences are handled in cases with multiple victims and multiple person offenses. But we don't get, we don't make that call. The sentencing guidelines makes that call, and we rare, we would. It's not our role to step in and say, "Oh, you know, I think it, a better policy would have been this." I agree that that's not this court's role. However, if you look at the language that this court used in 1948 in State versus Carroll, it's a discussion that even in looking at the plain language of a statute that does not have to, which here we'd be applying the similar statutory construction, that it does not imply, or excuse me, impose that plain language if it would lead to an absurd result. Here so I'm asking you, what's absurd about uh, the rule, you know, as it stood at the time of this case, second-degree attempts were not on the list. First-degree were. I, obviously, there's a difference between attempted first-degree and attempted second-degree. The whole issue of premeditation, that seems to me to be a logical dividing line. Why, what's absurd about that? Respectfully, I disagree that it's a logical dividing line. That basically means that if you can prove it, a premeditation for an attempted crime, then that person can be punished for that. But if you couldn't prove it for for someone you could just prove intentional but not premeditation then they don't get the same benefit and they don't there is no punishment for the crime committed against them because the individual commits multiple crimes against multiple people also, also I just want to make sure I understand um, your argument because I think we've been going back and forth I understand the state's argument to be 
that there was an agreement between the parties on what the defendant was going to plead to. Then the state dismissed the two counts. Correct. Um, then there's the PSI and the sentencing happens and um, the appellant argues for uh, concurrent and the state argues for consecutive. District court grants consecutive, but because the state waived Blakely as part of that plea agreement, there was never a reason for the district court to make any additional findings. Correct, Your Honor. Okay. However, if this court were to, to deem that there should be findings, I don't, I don't think we would be upset if it was sent back for findings that would support this. I don't want someone to be serving time for something that's illegal. That's not what I'm trying to, to position here. I would also point out that if you look at the language in the list on um, guidelines section, section six, with the list, it, when it included only attempted first degree murder and conspiracy, it only lists 609.185. It does not list 609.17. So an argument could be made that it wasn't referring specifically preventing all attempt crimes because it doesn't list 609.17. And I recognize that this court has rejected a similar argument in Noggle, and I don't need to repeat the reason. Counsel, I want to go back to your inherent authority argument. Yes. That was kind of your safety valve for yes. um, people not noticing an illegal sentence. Um, do we have the inherent authority not to apply Minnesota Statutes 590, the statute of limitations? I think you could still be applying it by going through the interest of justice exception. No, but there's the a statute line. of limitations there. And if this is really a post-conviction petition rather than a Rule 27.03 matter, do we have the inherent power? Or can, we, can we ignore the two-year statute of limitations in Section 590 under the rubric of our inherent authority? I don't think you would necessarily be ignoring it because you could go in through the interest of justice exception to the time limit. That would be a way to go in an exercise oh, in your I, inherent I authority, your you'd be going in through the interest of justice is how I would anticipate it, I or interpret it. I don't think that you would be allowed to outright ignore a statute. Unless there are further questions, I would respectfully ask that this court conclude that this was a post-conviction petition and was therefore time barred. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Ms. Middlebrook, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Ms. Middlebrook, the only way this looks like Coles is if you give um, some weight to the state's point that it gave up Blakely. It gave up a right to argue Blakely. What difference, how does Blakely play into the, whether or not this was a plea agreement under Coles? And I understand that the state's arguing that the state gave up their right to uh, Blakely to seek an aggravated departure. But in looking through the whole record, the state never noticed, they never filed a Blakely notice at all um, up to that point. There had been no notice filed. So I'm not sure if they, you know, were decide, gonna, they were thinking they would do that or if it's part of the, the defendant is gonna plead guilty and they decide this is, you know, attempted second degree murder, this is a serious offense, it's a long sentence, that's, you know, I'm fine with that. Um, I think it, it also Counsel, is... Counsel, remind me, do they, I'm looking for it now, do they mention Blakely at the sentencing hearing? They do not. They, at the, well, they may have in the sense that if they repeated what the plea was, but I think it, it was at the plea hearing that they said that they were agreeing to waive their Blakely, um, any Blakely So it does issue. come up at some point. At, it, the, it's plea, at the plea, right, think? at the plea. But I, I do find it interesting, and, and I pointed it out in the brief, that, you know, the state, this is a serious offense, second-degree attempted murder. Um, it's a serious offense. It's a long sentence. But then the state does not really insist on a cap of the top of the box plus a consecutive sentence. So it's extremely different than the Cole situation where the um, there was a agreement to a lesser charge and the defendant actually got less than what he would have under the original charge um, and agreed to the upward departure. Here that's not the situation. Um, the, the other thing is that it was up to the district court to decide. They left it up to the district court to decide consecutive versus concurrent. And I pose this question. If the court had imposed concurrent sentences thinking that 163 months was a long enough sentence, would the state be arguing that that 
violated the plea agreement, would they be making that argument? I don't think so. I think they, they went in asking for the 163, knowing then consecutive was going to be up to the judge. So I don't, it doesn't make any sense that that somehow binds the defendant to a particular plea agreement. And if, if, they, if this is decided Counsel, to be... I, I just, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with the Coles argument. Um, and maybe you can help me some more. I mean, I'm just looking at the opinion in Coles where we said, we talked about the dissent and we indicate that, there, that, that the dissent is correct, that there are multiple, there, there are a number of reasons why the state enters into plea agreements. Um, and then we said, the parties made it clear that in this particular plea agreement, the sentence with an upward departure was a crucial reason. So the state is arguing here that they gave up the right to ask for an enhanced sentence. And that was a crucial part of the plea agreement. So why doesn't this fall within the scope of Coles? Again, Coles was, was I understand there was the a fact. there was a different yes. agreement in Coles. I get it. But right. but here the state dismisses some of the charges and the state says we're not going to ask the judge to depart upward on the basis of the brutality of of this crime uh, either as to the as to the the child or the adult. Right. So they gave something up. So why isn't Coles well, on point here? The reason, the reason is, is because, first of all, I think when you look at what happened here, they, they had not filed a Blakely notice. So at that point in time, maybe they were thinking about it, who knows? But the, the reality is they don't then insist on the very highest sentence that appellant could get uh, that would be a presumptive sentence. And by just giving up the fact that they don't, aren't going to seek an aggravated departure, that isn't part of the plea. The defendant has a right to plead guilty straight up to the court, which is basically what he did here. And the two charges that were dismissed were lesser included or it's part of the same behavioral incident. In fact, I, I don't think he couldn't even get the a counsel, conviction and sentence counsel, on those. There, I mean, certainly I have had an experience with the, with a straight plea, but it's it's very different. When, when it's a straight plea, there's no negotiation generally with the state. The state has not taken part in any conversation as to what the package deal will be. So tell me why there isn't a difference there, because that's not how I read this record. I don't think you can, you can't read this record to say that there is actually a negotiated plea agreement. The defendant here pleads to the top two charges. And if the state wanted high, a higher sentence, then maybe they needed to negotiate that he what would get. What authority does the district court have? In the context of a straight plea, what authority does the district court have to dismiss charges? Well, I guess there wouldn't be any authority to dismiss them except that when you Isn't would that get Isn't that the point to, then? There has to have been an agreement here because the district court on its own can't dismiss charges. Well, it, at the point where they're, they're lesser included and part of the same behavioral incident, the court couldn't sentence on those and enter conviction. So that would be at that stage. But again, That's you've different got, than dismissing the charges. True. The state agreed to dismiss the two because they were lesser than the ones that he pled guilty to. Let, so, let me ask the question that I think is we're, we're circling around here. Was the state's agreement in the plea agreement not to seek an upward departure a material term of the plea agreement? No, it was not. How about the state's decision? And where does it support that in the record? It, it wasn't a material part of the plea agreement because the defendant is pleading straight up to the top charges. So it's not... Um, it's not a material part was of the there plea. a provision in the the plea agreement whereby the state agreed not to seek an upward departure that was they they said that at the plea hearing so that was part of the deal i mean i don't see it as a plea deal i don't see that as a, a plea agreement it's he's pleading straight up the state says they're fine with 163 months on the attempted yeah, but when murder. Someone, when someone pleads straight up, so the state, of course, then has the option of seeking an upward departure, right? If they want to pursue that, I guess they could, but they, they hadn't even noticed it at that point. 
What weight do we give to, I'm looking at the prosecutor's statements. He says, we're scheduled today for a jury trial. It's my understanding the defendant intends to enter a plea of guilty to the two top counts in this matter. In exchange for that plea, the state would waive any Blakely issues it has and dismiss the other two counts of the complaint. Is that a plea agreement? You know, I mean... So I would I would say it it's more it's more of the the terms of the plea and what's going on there. I mean, if you're if you're going to call that if that's necessarily going to be a plea agreement, then any anything it opens up to anything being a plea agreement. So I I think that it's just going too far, and it also goes too far with regard to what this court defined and set out in Coles. Well, and if we're going to go down like the path of applying contract law principles, do people get the right to say, oh, I didn't know what the law was? A mistake of law, does that get you out of an agreement? I mean, they, they, the, the state basically here is, their argument here is, we actually didn't know what the law was. And so we entered an agreement without knowing what the law was, expecting that the judge was going to impose a sentence that was illegal under the law. And now they're coming back and trying to seek to the benefit of that bargain. Does that seem right to you? No, absolutely not. It's not, it isn't right. And I also would just point out to the court that the, this issue on whether or not this should be construed as a post-conviction petition was forfeited by the state, and we did file a motion to strike, and we would ask the court to grant that motion. The state is arguing that under Rule 2904, Subdivision 6, that they can argue that to the court. But that, this is a different issue than the issue of whether the sentences, the consecutive sentences, was authorized. And in fact, the, the state, by that argument, is basically seeking more relief than it got, than a bigger remedy, because part of this, this motion to correct the sentence included the unlawful 10-year conditional release that was imposed on the attempted second-degree murder conviction. It's clearly an illegal sentence, an unauthorized sentence, but the Court of Appeals ruled that that was unauthorized, and the Court of Appeals also ruled that this was not to be construed as a post-conviction petition. So by the state doing this, they are seeking additional remedy and more relief than what if they, if they weren't able to make that argument. And that leaves this, I see my time is up. Um, okay, so it, it would leave the, the court in the position then that that unlawful 10-year conditional release would have to stay on his sentence, which it, it's absolutely illegal and unlawful, just like the consecutive sentences are. So we would ask the court to reverse and order that these sentences be concurrent. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. Uh, we'll issue an opinion in due course. I'll